This is the second Sunday after Christmas, <clears throat> and often we don't uh, get to celebrate the second Sunday after Christmas because of the way the calendar runs. So you normally get one Sunday after Christmas, and then sometimes Epiphany comes, and no more second Sunday after Christmas. So what I thought I'd do is a very brief recapitulation of the uh, <clears throat> themes of Christmas Eve, Christmas, uh, Christmas Day, and the first Sunday after Christmas, because they talk about the importance of the Incarnation, the affirmations that I'm going to read to you once again, and also in the introduction to John's Gospel, the uh, sort of spiritual predicate of how John understands the meaning and the significance of uh, the coming into the world of God becoming a human being, and what, what's, what, what are some of the ways of understanding, or a way of understanding, what it is that uh, the author of John's Gospel is getting at. But on Christmas Eve, we, we talk about, or I always do, the four affirmations. The goodness of humanity. In Christ, we can achieve the highest of our human potential. We affirm that it's possible to be joyful and that Christian people are to be about peace, the shalom of God, and that those four things will extend now throughout the liturgical year, but they have a particular and unique focus uh, during Christmas. On Christmas Day, we read the introduction or part of it of uh, John's Gospel. <clears throat> so you can amaze your friends. You can refer to it as the Johannine Prologue if you wish to do that. Uh, that's the technical name for it, uh, the introduction. And here Jesus is introduced to the reader uh, in the original language as the logos, the word. But logos can mean a, a number of things, and my favorite definition of logos is the organizing principle. So that we understand, or Christian people have understood, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template that we lay over our own spiritual maturity, and therefore he constitutes for us a pattern of living that we have, uh, we wish to emulate in some fashion. We can never be Jesus, and maybe probably we sh shouldn't try, but like Father Keating said, we are not God, but our true self is God. So the spiritual life has something to do with growing in to the whole idea of what it means to be a human being and to touch the divine spark that is within every human being. Dr. William Countryman, in a book he wrote a long time ago called The Mystical Way of the Fourth Gospel, speaks about what he believed the, the author of John's Gospel was getting at, and he refers to it as mystical union. The goal of the Christian life is somehow to be united with Jesus in such a way as to be able to discover your true center and to be the best human being that you can be. So he has some definitions that he, de this is how he defines what he means. You know, I always hesitate to use the word mystical because it sounds kind of Star Trek-y or, you know, Twilight Zone-y, you know. <laughs> what does it mean when you talk about that? 
I mentioned to you before, by the way, that my teacher, Urban Holmes, one of my teachers in seminary, talked about mysticism as one of the threads in Anglican spirituality. The other one he talked about was pietism. And he said pietism, uh, which is much later than mysticism, uh, is the, 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 the believed need for a felt experience of the presence of God, which some uh, in the Christian tradition, particularly in this country, refer to as like being born again. And mysticism is a path towards union with God that involves five things. Purgation, which is a fancy term I'll define in a minute. Emptying, another one. Study. Patience. And discipline. So it's, it's, it's things that you can put in your hands. Purgation is an old-fashioned word for purging from yourself or removing from yourself those things that you know are obstacles uh, f for you to, to be your true self, to in some way be spiritually mature. Emptying is learning in your prayer life to be able to push to the side the distractions that you have in your life. Everybody is distracted. Everybody. But through, through application, you can begin to uh, put that to the side. Father Keating says when you first start to do centering prayer, he's right about this, he said it's like sitting in front of the Suez Canal while all the ships are going like this. Right? So in some way, you, you, you learn how to push that to the side. Study is being the best student you can be of the deep things of Christian faith and belief, but also it has application in whatever it is that you do. So it's sort of like keeping up. You know, when you go see your doctor, you're hoping that she's reading the literature. You know, she's actually paying some attention to that. And it's true if you wish to become a student of anything, that you need to uh, exercise uh, some study. Uh, patience is understanding that God's work in you is done uh, on, in his time, not your time. So we've talked before about the two words in the Bible for time. One is chronos. Time. And the other one is kairos, which is time. <laughs> okay? Time. And that's how this all works, is in time, which can be very frustrating. And the final thing is discipline. Being able to cultivate the interior self-regulation to be able to meet the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of you on a daily basis. Easy to say, very hard to do. But if you apply yourself, you can begin to uh, be disciplined about what it is, intentional about what it is that you do. My own experience as a pastor is, is that many of us are perfectly capable of undertaking hair-raising austerities if it will make us more popular, more attractive, or more able to uh, do well economically, right? We will, we will engage in all kinds of things. 
So it's important to understand that uh, it, you can do it, because many people do all the time. Anyway, mysticism is what Bill Countryman's talking about here in some form. And he, he defines it in one of the best ways that I, I know. Mysticism is defined as describing an experience of things or persons outside myself as direct and unmediated as my experience of myself is. An experience of things or persons outside myself as direct and unmediated as my experience of myself is. At one level, this may be an experience of the order of the cosmos and of my place in it. Like Joseph Campbell said when he was on the track team at Columbia, he said he was standing on the track one day and for about four seconds he knew exactly who he was and where he fit in. Right? In the world. He referred to that as bliss. You know, following your bliss. So, in that case, at one level this may be an experience of the order of the cosmos and of my place in it, in which case it is called mystical enlightenment. At another level, it may be an experience of full knowledge of another specific being, in which case it is called mystical union. Union may be understood as implying a complete dissolution of the human who enters into it, or it may appear as the complete opening of two realities one into another. So in John's Gospel, those species of, of uh, mystical uh, experience are what are talked about in the fourth Gospel. So they sort of set the predicate for now what we're going to tomorrow begin, which is Epiphany. But on the second Sunday after Christmas, uh, in this cycle, we have three readings which uh, begin to speak about uh, sort of historical and theological ways of explaining the mystery of the Incarnation. And remember again, using the word mystery does not mean the, something that is unknowable. It means something that is infinitely knowable. That's what the mystery is. Maybe that's why the Beatles wanted to go on a magical mystery tour. <laughs> you know, who knows? So Jeremiah... Herman Wetjen, who taught New Testament for years at the San Francisco Theological Seminary in San Anselmo, and I knew him when I lived in Marin County, uh, he, he, he said in a commentary I read this week, Jeremiah lived and prophesied through the final catastrophic decades of the little kingdom of Judah. He survived the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BCE, and subsequently was taken to Egypt by exile-seeking refugees. It is there where he lived his, out his last years. So if there's a painter of the blue picture in the prophetic literature of the Old Testament, it's Jeremiah. But there are times when he is uncharacteristically upbeat. And today, he's speaking about God's action in terms of reconciliation and restoration. 
So we've concluded the Babylonian exile, or people are coming back now from Babylon into Israel, wider Israel. And Jeremiah speaks in a very inclusive and comprehensive way about how God works in the world and how we need to understand this. So he believes that although the Babylonian captivity was God's judgment on the people, he is now going to restore and bring back everyone who was in exile because of God's everlasting love for us. And so he begins to say in his prophetic uh, comments that this is how he thinks it's going to happen. And it's not going to be just in Judah, where he's from, but it's going to be all the peoples of Israel who are now going to come within this reconciliation and restoration. Now, this this is one of those passages that Christian people will take up and connect it to Jesus, although... Probably if you would have asked Jeremiah if he was thinking of somebody named Jesus of Nazareth in the future, he wouldn't know what you were talking about. And yet at the same time, people uh, read this who did believe in Jesus and did uh, hear his words and see his works. And they said, you know, this, these sayings have something to do with this. We have put two and two together here in terms of our own personal history not personal individual, but as a people. And this is how we understand what it might mean for us. They were seen in some way as uh, predictive of the coming of Jesus. The reading from Ephesians, is, let me say this again. Uh, this is some of the stuff we're going to talk about in Episcopalian 101. Some people get tired of hearing this. Uh, most biblical scholars believe that Ephesians was not written by Paul. They believe it was written by a disciple of Paul probably a generation after he was martyred. Now, I think, to be frank, a, a case can be made for the Pauline authorship of Ephesians. And there are some who have been doing that recently. But the, the reason why I want to tell you about that is because one of the, the, the pressures on the scholarly community when they came to this conclusion in their work in the 20th century and so forth, in some cases earlier, was that it gives us some idea of the transmission of the teaching of Paul within the communities of the church he founded. It talks about the continuity and the consistency of the teaching with different emphases. So in Ephesians, you get a lot, and it's a, this is in the introduction, about the body of Christ. And Jesus is the head. And people began to understand themselves uh, corporately as part of the body of Christ and how we understand this. And as a result of that, the, the author of the letter to the Ephesians is talking about a new creation. A new kind of anthropology about who Jesus is and by extension who we are as human beings and how that affects the way in which we relate and interact with one another. So that's where we get the whole concept or one of the places for what is known as participation in Christ. This has been a neglected area in Pauline studies because people have concentrated on Paul's uh, writing about justification. 
which is not unimportant, but it's not the whole thing. And participation in Christ is if you understand yourself to be part of the body, then you are participating participating in the processes of Christ to the world in every age. And so uh, in Ephesians, that what is going to be emphasized. Finally, in Matthew's gospel, we have the story. Have you, did you notice today how many dreams Joseph had in the course of this reading? He had a lot of revelations of dreams. So when we, in the uh, therapeutic age, which is a long, real old now, it's way, about 50 or 60 years old, people like Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud and some of their others uh, would say, you know, dreams are important and you should remember your dreams. Have you ever engaged in the discipline of saying, you know what, I'm going to wake up in the morning and I'm gonna, when I have a dream, I'm going to write it down. So about 25 or 30 years ago, I had this dream, and in the dream, I said to myself, in the dream, this is the most brilliant thing I have ever thought. So I, got, I woke up, and I had a pad by my bed, and I wrote down the thing that I had thought. And I went back to sleep, and I woke up, and I took the pad, and it said, ice cream has no bones. That's <laughs> true. Well, it's true. So, you know, you have to be a little bit careful, but in the ancient Near East, this is how God spoke to people often, was through our dreams. And sometimes that may even still be true. So he gets a message, and that is that King Herod is looking for his son Jesus, and that he wants to kill him. And so he needs to take Mary and Joseph and Jesus out of there and go to Egypt. So he goes to Egypt until it says, uh, it's not a threat anymore, until Herod dies. And he does. And the next dream is take, take the family back to Israel. So he goes back. But on his way back, it, he discovers that Archelaus is now the king in place of Herod, who's also not terribly trustworthy, and he, he's worried about their security so he doesn't go to Bethlehem he goes to Nazareth and there's that's where Jesus and the, and the Holy Family uh, grow up and, and, and are there now Matthew is uh, in some ways the most Jewish of the Gospels and it's entirely possible that Matthew was a rap, former rabbi and he was interested in making connections between Jesus and David between the teachings of Jesus and what they had learned in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and how we understand how Jesus now in some way uh, fits into this picture. So Jesus 
is for Matthew, the new Moses. And in his teaching and in his words and in his works, he embodies the new Torah. Where the law of love is the operative principle in all human interaction. And so he, in his gospel, seeks now to make parallels uh, between or comp- favorable comparisons between Jesus and Moses. So what is the, in, in the great the great liberating act of the people of Israel, the great defining moment where Moses is at the center is what? The, the return f- from slavery and bondage in Egypt into the promised land. So he has Joseph and Mary and Jesus in Egypt coming back out of Egypt just like Moses did and going now to Nazareth where it says he shall be called a Nazarene I'm not sure if that means the Nazarites or one of the, but it's a sect that, that um, what's the guy in the Old Testament who was a Nazarite, you know, who brought down the big strong, I can't remember his name right now. Samson. Samson, that's right. He was a Nazarite and no razor ever touched his head. So in some way, Jesus is connected to this and he represents, therefore, the fulfillment of the messianic yearnings and uh, hopes of the Jewish people. And Matthew was at pains to, to speak about that in today's gospel. That is important to him. So tomorrow is Epiphany, and we have a transfer now of emphasis between the presence of Christ to the church during the short Christmas Sundays and, and Christmas day and so forth and we're now going to go to the manifestation of Christ to the world so Christian people are being told today that they're part of the body of Christ that God unconditionally loves accepts and forgives them and that somehow we are part of the great sweep of the history of salvation and so it's not just our own private preserve where we sit and and bask in that knowledge and that reality but the manifestation of Christ to the world means that we need to put it in our hands and uh, make things different than they are now and that Jesus has promised that on Christmas Eve I said uh, one of the texts that I use all the time or the quotes myself is from 2nd Corinthians where Paul says we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us So that's the job now as we move into Epiphany. Amen.